Hello and welcome to episode number 11 of The Music Plays the Band. I'm your host Rob Koritz of the Dark Star Orchestra and I'm really glad you're here joining me today. I hope everybody is safe and well. Well, we've been back on the road now and boy, it felt so good getting to play music and make people happy while you're doing it. Is, it's just the best. It's pretty much living the dream. Uh, even though we're back to work though, I'm still going to be producing episodes every two weeks and this week is a big one. I am honored and thrilled to bring you a conversation with the legendary Yorma Kaukinen today. As a founding member of the Jefferson Airplane, Yorma was right there with the dead inventing what's become known as the jam band scene, and to this day is still defining it along with Jack Cassidy and their band Hot Tuna. I had so much to ask in so little time, but Yorma shed some light on how this all got started and how the dead played a role in his life and career. Also with me today is Jeff Malinowski of Nashville, Tennessee to tell us about his band, The Stolen Faces, and the Nashville Dead Scene. Before we get started, I'd like to ask you all to support the podcast by heading over to patreon.com forward slash the music plays and purchasing a subscription. We have tiers for everyone's budget, and they all include some great bonus content to supplement the podcast you hear on the air. If you'd rather make a one-time contribution, please visit paypal.me forward slash the music plays. I could not be doing this without your support, and any and all love is very much appreciated. All right, let's get started with the Black Music Moment. The Black Music Moment is brought to you by The Queen Store, brandingandapparel.com for all your branding and apparel needs. Technology-driven solutions and concierge service for managing programs of all sizes. The Black Music Moment is our attempt at chronicling the profound influence of black music and musicians on the Grateful Dead, and today we honor Otis Redding. Otis Redding is considered one of the greatest singers in the history of American music, specifically soul music and rhythm and blues. He got much of his inspiration from gospel music, and his singing style influenced many other soul artists from the 1960s and beyond. He was born in Georgia in 1941, began playing piano, guitar, and drums at an early age, and like so many other black artists, was singing in the church choir. He won numerous talent contests, and by age 15 he was singing professionally. Early on he was heavily influenced by Little Richard, and for a time he even had Little Richard's band as his backing band. He spent some time in L.A., but eventually ended up in Memphis, recording for the Stax label, and he had tremendous success. Uh, His most famous song is probably... The Timeless uh, Dock of the Bay, which reached number one. And some of his other well-known tunes were Mr. Pitiful, Try a Little Tenderness, and the one we'll hear today, Hard to Handle. He wrote many of his songs, as well as songs for other artists. These would include sweet soul music and one of the most famous tunes of all time, Respect, which he originally recorded, but we all know it as Aretha Franklin's biggest hit. His hallmark was his raw voice and his ability to convey strong emotion, and he was a huge influence on many, ranging from rock artists like Led Zeppelin and Leonard Skinner and Janis Joplin, to R&B artists including Al Green, Marvin Gaye, and Etta James. Unfortunately, Redding died in the plane crash at the age of 26, but his songs and influence live on to this day. Now, the Dead were huge Otis Redding fans. Uh, Pigpen had been performing Redding tunes for years, and the Dead were actually able to open up for him at the San Francisco Fillmore in 1966. Redding wrote and recorded Hard to Handle just prior to his death and it was released posthumously. It was immediately covered by many artists and the Dead debuted it in March of 69. 
It started out as an opener, but it eventually it evolved into a great jam vehicle with extended guitar solos and some pig pen rapping. It became a staple of the show, and it was played over a hundred times from 1969 to 71. So here is Otis Redding with the original version of Hard to Handle. Cause mama, I'm so hard to hell and I yes around. Action, speech louder than word, and I'm a man with a great experience. I know you got you another man, but I can love you better than him. Take my hand, don't be afraid, I wanna prove every word I say. I'm advertising love for free, so won't you place your ad with me? Boys will call my dime out for loving, but that ain't nothing but ten cent love. Pretty little thing, let me light the count, cause mama, I'm so hard to hell and I yes around. Baby, here I am, I'm a man on the scene. The SMS Breakdown with Brad Sarno is brought to you by Sarno Music Solutions, producing the finest musical instrument audio gear, designed and hand-built in St. Louis, Missouri since 2003, and Blue Jade Audio Mastering, St. Louis's primary audio mastering service since 1999. You know, last week we finished up talking about Owsley and the Wall of Sound, and today Brad and I are going to get started on our talk about sound engineer Dan Healy. Dan was such a groundbreaker in the world of sound reinforcement and such a vital part of the dead sound that Brad and I kind of went on for a long time on this one. So uh, we're going to spread this one out over two or maybe even three episodes. There's just so much to learn about and from Dan Healy. Uh, So I hope you enjoy it, and here is part one. And once again, we are back with Brad Sarno. How are you, my friend? Doing good, Rob. I'm glad to have you back, and we can continue... uh, continue our discussion about sound reinforcement you know last week we really got into Owsley and the wall um and 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 we brought up Healy Dan Healy who was one of Owsley's assistants in the early days because he was there in the 60s um eventually he took over and again like you were talking about being pioneers he was really a pioneer in the field as well am I right oh definitely definitely he, uh, I, I know you've had a chance to spend some time with him, and I have as well. He actually came on the road with us once um, when we needed a sound man. And he got on the bus and spent about a month with us on the road, which was fantastic for learning things and for hearing stories. Um, but there's some things that had never happened before until Healy and Owsley and those guys. First, the wall of sound that we talked about last week. But I didn't know any of this, some of this. I had to look up. Delay towers at a festival. The big towers that people see halfway back so that everybody in the back hears it the same way. The dead invented that. Yeah, apparently that was uh, that was another one of these um, problems needing a solution. And, uh, you know, you can't put a secondary set of PA speakers um, 
without delaying them because sound travels so fast. So if you put, you know, some towers of PA a few hundred yards or a hundred yards away from the stage that you have to electronically delay that audio so that when the stage sound arrives at the towers, then that same sound is released at the tower. So everything's lined up for the people in the back or else they'd hear horrible echoes and doublings of sound. And and they do all that. It's called time alignment, correct? Yeah. You're time aligning. You're setting the delay time, like how much, how long the audio has to wait before it is allowed to come out of the secondary towers. Um, and it's all based on the speed of sound. So it's, it's microseconds, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, really short periods yeah. of time. We talk about about a millisecond per foot. So you get up to a, a pretty hefty fraction of a second. So, wow. yeah. And, and they did that at Watkins Glen at the big, it, so that sound check is so famous for the music musicianship of the Watkins Glen sound check, but it was pretty important for them too, as they were learning how to use those delay towers. Yeah. And I think they were, it was facilitated by some of the really early uh, digital delay technology that was just coming on in the seventies. Right on. Ones and zeros, man. That's right. Uh, I know that some of the other techniques, some of the other things Healy brought in were uh, the dead. Essentially, the dead were pretty much invented in your in your monitors. They were one of the first bands to use those as well. Uh, yeah, that was uh, early 90s. That really seemed to to catch on. The whole idea of reducing stage loudness, taking the, the loud wedges off and... Um, you know, figuring out how to have that immediacy. And it really helped vocalists sing better, helped everybody uh, control and have their own perfect mix. Um, it, it comes with challenges, but once dialed in, people really seem hooked on it. And and now it's the standard. Everybody uses them. Yeah, it's it's yeah. Has swept, yeah. You know, for us, I mean, I've, I've used them now for 20 years, and, and they're great. They save your hearing. The sound is better. You can control the volume. Uh, from a drummer's perspective, they don't provide enough low end because it's such a small little speaker. So for like the bass drum, we'll use uh, a separate, I have just a 15 inch speaker on stage right next to me that has nothing but bass drum in it. Right. And some drummers will put the shakers on their seat. So they feel the bump in the, in the I tried that and it gave me back pain. Yeah. It actually, some I've heard drummers overused them and actually got back injury from it. Yeah. What what they're talking about, there's a a vibrating pack you can put on the bottom of your drum stool called a thumper. And when you hit the kick drum, it triggers it. So it would, it would literally vibrate and rock you. Um, I didn't like it, but I like having the, the, the speaker next to me just to give some more bottom end. Uh, another thing that I, if you could explain, we were talking last week about the, the vocal mics and, you know, having the bleed back from the, uh, the PA on the wall of sound. So they had the, the two mics to cancel, um, with all the stage volume, I mean, the dead was a loud band on stage with all the stage volume. He came up with a technique to take care of vocal bleed as well for that. Didn't he? Yeah. The, um, they're basically those rubber mats that open the door at a grocery store. Um, and hooked up to a little circuit that will mute the vocal microphones because so much of a dead show is uh, instrumental jamming. And um, so they Healy got this figured out. So when the musicians would step off the mat, and the mat was just at the microphone for singing, um, it would turn off the vocal mics and greatly reduce all the ambient bleed from the drums and cymbals and amps uh, that would leak through the vocal mics. And automatically give a much cleaner mix um, during the instrumental sections of the of the music. 
when when those vocal mics would open would could would it make a big difference in the sound or is there body blocking it from from doing that uh you can hear it i I know on a lot of soundboards you can hear at the end of a jam all of a sudden this it's like somebody turned up a fader that allowed a lot of ambient bleed in but that was the singer stepping on the mat and uh then the vocals start so you can definitely hear the difference and i think you're right there's something about when a vocalist is at the mic their head is blocking some of that sound but definitely definitely not all of it well we still got so much more to talk about so i'm going to hold off and we'll pick this up on our next episode so uh want to thank you for being here as always and we'll talk again next week all right good talking to you rob take care all right thank you that's brad sarno folks today's edition of there is a grateful dead cover band in every town is brought to you by the authenticity academy offering you online courses and private coaching if you're feeling stuck or confused about the direction your life is going in or you've lost touch with your authentic self the authenticity academy is here to help www.authenticity.coach Today we're heading to Nashville, Tennessee to talk to Jeff Malinowski of the Stolen Faces. The Dead only played Nashville three times, once in 72 and twice in 78, and we don't hit that market very often either. But as the saying goes, we are everywhere, and there is a vibrant Dead scene in Music City, USA. Okay, good day. We are here talking to someone from Music City. We got Jeff Malinowski of the Stolen Faces. How are you today? I'm doing great, Rob. How are you? I'm great. I really appreciate you coming on and uh, and, and and talking to me about this. You know, Nashville isn't necessarily thought of as a big dead town. You know, the dead only played there three times. Mm-hmm. And I think the last time they played there was in like 78. Yeah. I can tell you that Dark Star doesn't go there that often. Right. Um, I remember the first time we were there was at the Exit Inn, which is so small. Totally. Way back, like in 99, 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't come there very often, but there is definitely a dead scene in Nashville. Oh, for sure. I, I most recently saw you guys. I think it was at Marathon. Was it Marathon Music Works? Yeah, Marathon oh, Music Works. Like 74 show. And it was great. It was great. It, it, there, was a, there was a good crowd. I mean, people were loving it. That was the place, the big glass windows that look out on the street yes. behind yeah. the bar. Yeah, I remember it. Right on. So tell me a little bit about the Stolen Faces, a uh, brief history, how y'all formed, when y'all formed. For sure. So the band's been together um, since 2013, uh, 2013 or 2012. And our band leader, bass player, uh, Christian Grizzard, he started the band um, because he he has as like a joint custody situation with his son and he wanted to be be able to be like totally in control of his gigging schedule. So he basically formed the band and with the goal of this band's going to play every other weekend and I'm going to book the shows and, and kind of grow the thing. And over time, the sort of people interested in playing this music found him and, and, um, the band sort of came together and I'm sort of the new guy. I've been with the band since like 2018. I went and saw them just randomly on a Monday night. We have this Monday night residency in town and um, uh old friend of mine was playing keys, old friend of mine from New York actually. And I was like, man, I got to play with this band. This looks like so much fun. I had been touring with uh, like kind of Americana bands being on the road a bunch. And I was like, this is what I should be doing. I want to be playing with this band. And, and uh, that's, that's where we're at now. So it's not, it's not all Nashville cats. Then it's some people like you and you're and the other guy who moved to Nashville for music careers and ended up in the, in the band. 
For sure. I mean, when the band started, Christian, um, he knew he knew a couple of people, but he was he's super organized and he made great charts for all the stuff. So and Nashville being full of people that can read charts well and um, and great players, he could get people that didn't necessarily know the material intimately, but could hang on a gig and play some of the deeper cuts without, you know, without <clears throat> being like, yeah, super familiar. But then over time, it just came to be that there were guys that could make themselves available for the schedule. And, and um, so now we, we've had this sort of set lineup for the past couple of years. And what's the instrumentation in that? Um, it's two guitars, bass, drums, and keys, you know, how, uh, how often do y'all play? Uh, I mean, pre pandemic or our schedule ends up being about like 90 to hundred shows a year. Wow. Um, yeah. I mean, because, because we do every other weekend, Friday, Saturday, sometimes Sunday, depending on if there's something close by and we end up going like as far south as Mobile, Pensacola Beach area, as far north as Cleveland, because Jack, the uh, other guitar player in the band, um, is from Cleveland. And then we'll go, you know, Knoxville east and then, you know, as far west as Little Rock. Um, How long does it take to drive to Cleveland from Nashville? It's like an eight-hour drive. And we we do it like times a year, you know. And and then we have a weekly or every other week. Monday gig down on Broadway at this great place called Acme. Um, so yeah, you know, it, it's a, it's a busy schedule, but because it's only like a weekend at a time, it doesn't get, it doesn't become much of a drag, you know, right. every other weekend off. So, um, you know, we're able to, everyone else is able to f- squeeze in, you know, other musical projects and things like that um, in our gaps. Right. All the guys are, are Nashville musicians, so they're doing a bunch of other stuff as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. We're all juggling other stuff as well. Um, but, you know, during the pandemic, all, all everything else has stopped, right. you know. And so this has been the only thing that we've able been able to kind of still do some gigs. Like uh, last summer, we, we were able to play some, some outdoor things, um, some of our usual spots. And then now that everyone's getting vaccinated, um, we're all feeling good about going back out and, and uh, getting, getting kind of back to normal. Yeah. Same as us. We just finally, well, by the time this airs, we will have just gone back out for our first weekend. Yeah. You know, it feels good to be able to do it. You know, it's still yeah. outdoors and socially distanced and it's different, but it's work. It is. It is. And it's still like you realize when you get out there, how much people have missed it. Like we just started up our, our Acme gig, the uh, every other Monday gig. We just had our first one, and man, it was so nice to see everybody. Yeah, I can't wait. And and for them to, I could tell that it was so nice for them to see the music and experience it. It's yeah. I watched a bunch of video and was looking around, you know, doing my homework, if you will. That's cool. And um, you guys tackle some of the hard stuff for sure. You know, I heard the weather report, "Sweet Let It Grow," and yeah. You know, Greatest story, which is not the easiest song out there, to be honest, because all the time yeah. changes and all that. Yeah. And y'all sound really, really good and and, and, and very, very authentic. Um, do you all take that kind of approach? Do you take a specific approach to interpreting and performing it? I would say we, we're we sort of uh, on both sides of the spectrum in a way. Like we will, I mean, I've spent countless hours like 
figuring out all the Bobby stuff and like really digging in and, and Jack who plays all the Jack uh, plays all the Jerry stuff, same because like when you get those two guitar thing, when you get it happening and the parts are just how they did it, it's part of the mojo. And it's like, it's part of playing the music to me. Um, but that said, once we get into like a more open-ended jam thing, then we just kind of play like us and maybe I'll lead a jam or, or um, we'll take it in, you know, try to find something new in it every yeah, time. That's uh, an approach that sounds very familiar to me. Yes, exactly. Totally. <laughs> and yeah. It, it's, it's, it's simultaneously fun to be able to like see how close you can get to the tapes that you know so well. And then um, how different can you make the jam to, to keep yourself kind of like, surprised right um let's talk about nashville you know we, we brought it up that you wouldn't think it's a big community down there but it actually is um when you go when you have your gigs you mentioned it was so good to see everybody <clears throat> excuse me do you see a lot of the same people from gig to gig do you have a tight-knit community down there of regulars and old timers if you will definitely and um i mean nashville i think has a reputation as being not a great place for a local band because a lot of because people that are into music are probably musicians and they're probably working a lot and on their off nights they're probably not going to see music right but with this band it's different it people you know the the people that are into the dead are huge music fans and they're huge music supporters so um you know they've got their like there's a great Tennessee Jed's Facebook page that's there's chapter for uh, Nashville and one for Memphis. And I think there's one for like East Tennessee too. And it's a great way for them to organize and, you know, share shows that are coming up all over like the jam band community. And they totally embrace us as uh, you know, they're, they're fans. They they'll organize events around us or involve us with, with things like that. And, you know, some of the other like bigger places for us to play, like Birmingham and Mobile and Alabama, it, same thing. Like we have a, there's a core group of people that are just music fans and they sort of embraced us as a go-to kind of dead experience for them. Um, it's great. Well, I asked this question. You, you listen to the podcast. Jeff's a, a devoted listener, which I really appreciate. Yeah, I That's how it. we met each other. Yeah. And so you've heard this question, but it always seems to get a different answer, which I love. What is it? Why, why this music? What creates this subculture from the, what, what, what is it about the Grateful Dead that made this happen? You know, I will not take credit for the response, but when you had Reed on Reed Mathis, I think he summed it up so well by saying that this music, it's the only music that people go to when they want to grieve or have a dance party or, you know, at their wedding reception or, uh, you know, in, in moments of just like deep thought, it's the music for everything. And, uh, it can, it's, it's the great music to have in the background if you're hanging out with your friends. And so, um, people can come to one of our shows and, and hang out on a blanket and just, vibe out with their family or they can dance up in the front or, or, you know, have a beer back by, you know, by the bar and, and have a conversation. And it's all, um, it's the best music for that, I guess. For sure, man. Well, Hey, I can't think this has been great. I really appreciate the time. Oh, thank you. Yeah. 
And uh, I want to thank you and keep it up down in Nashville. If we ever get back down there, we will definitely meet up. Hopefully we'll be back down there soon. And uh, again, thank you so much for being here, man. Yeah, thanks, Rob. It's been a blast. That's Jeff Malinowski out of Music City, USA with Stolen Faces. Take care, my friend. Thanks, bud. Jeff and I had a great conversation, and there was a lot more to it than what you just heard. So if you'd like to hear that, plus a whole lot more great content, you can purchase a monthly subscription at patreon.com forward slash the music plays. You'll get that, plus all of the other outtakes, expanded and video segments, some rare DSO videos, community gatherings with me, and a whole lot more. That's www.patreon.com forward slash the music plays. If you'd like to offer your support with a one-time contribution, please visit paypal.me forward slash the music plays. Thank you all very much for your support. Our featured conversation is brought to you by Grateful Sweats. On Shakedown or online, Grateful Sweats is your first stop for subtle dead designs. Check them out at etsy.com slash shop slash Grateful Sweats and see for yourself. Designs only other heads will get. You know, that shirt with the state of Tennessee and the word jet is in the middle of it. If you see someone wearing that, you know they're on the bus. A subtle dead cap makes its point, and no one does sweats like Grateful Sweats. Hoodies, sweatpants, joggers, tees, and much more. Subtle Dead Designs at etsy.com slash shop slash Grateful Sweats. I am so honored to have Yorma Kalkin in for our feature conversation today. As a founding member of the Jefferson Airplane, he is truly one of the forefathers of today's jam band scene. Coming up in San Francisco in the 60s, he has a unique perspective on the Grateful Dead, and it was so cool to have him share some of his recollections and feelings about that important time in rock history. Yorma is still as relevant today with his band Hot Tuna, and all the goings-on he has out at the Fur Peace Ranch as well. Even during the pandemic, he's got so much going on that we only had a certain amount of time, but I really feel like he shed a lot of light on what was going on in the 60s. So uh, without further ado, here is Yorma Kalkinen. Okay, good morning. I'm here with Yorma Kalkinen. How are you today, my friend? Thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me, and so far I'm darn, darn good. Well, it's early in the morning still. Yeah, it's a lot can happen, right? <laughs> um, you're, you're home. You're on the ranch in Ohio, I presume? I am home. I'm on the ranch, and uh, I'm looking out the window. It's actually a lovely day today. It's going to be in the 80s, Beautiful. which is cool because it was like 17 degrees 10 days ago. It's been pretty crazy up and down this year. Uh, how you been spending your time? How you been keeping sane during all this, not being well, able to go out? I've, I've been doing, you know, like a lot of guys that teach, I've been doing lots of Zoom stuff, of course. Excuse me, the ranch has been closed. I've actually had a couple jobs in the last year, not many, but just enough so I can keep my identity. But mostly we've been doing our Saturday night uh, quarantine concert series, a free live stream from the ranch. And, you know, other than that, I I got my lawnmower running, took a motorcycle ride. Yeah, no, just, just trying to keep my sanity. But it looks like we're opening up a bit. I got some jobs coming up and... Yeah, we're finally getting out there at least a little bit outdoors. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Better than nothing. And if I'm not mistaken, you had a new album coming out during all this too, did you not? Yeah, yeah. One of the, one of the, uh, yeah. That, should, that probably should have been at the head of the list, but it's been a while, so I'm starting to take it for granted. So, so my my buddy John Hurlbut is he's our ranch manager. He and I we've been friends for 40 years, and you know we spend time playing together. You know we both play and we hang out this and that and. 
And, and over the years at the ranches, we've done silly, different ranch projects before the quarantine. Like we have, we have, we have a little restaurant, so we did faux dinners. We did this kind of dinner, that kind of dinner. And, and Johnny and I would play for, for the lunch and dinner set. So, so my, originally my thing was just, you know, for me to be able to not be Yorma the front man was so cool. I just tell him, well, just throw stuff at me and let's see what happens, you know. So he just started like just throwing songs at me. And then we started having so much fun that I got to thinking. He wasn't thinking about this. I got to thinking that, you know, we're sitting around the quarantines. I mean, the quarantine started to happen. We're sitting around. We have so much fun playing together. You know, I enjoy my role as, as an accompanist. I'm going to produce an album. So I got I got my buddy Justin. He's he's Larry Campbell's production partner, and he's our drummer in Hot Tuna. He right, brought sure. a studio in a box down, and 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 we set up and we recorded uh, we recorded fourteen songs in two days. Never did more than two takes, mostly mostly one take. All live, no movie magic, no plugged in, and uh, and we did this record. So anyway, and then you know, like I would have done this myself, but, but because we buy stuff for our store at the ranch. Johnny knew this guy, Ed Frank, that's one of the big dogs at, at Culture Factory Records, which is a French label that does like reissues. They recreate like, let's just point a little head or, or hot tip, whatever, just classical stuff. And so he was talking to Ed and Ed goes, well, how would you like it if we put your record out? And we're going, well, yeah, we would <laughs> like that. I mean, you know, I mean, in today's market, Hot Tuna couldn't quote unquote get a record deal because nobody's really interested in that stuff right now, you know. So, so, so Culture Factory did a fantastic job for us. Vinyl, splatter vinyl, the twelve-page booklet. I mean, it's really it's unbelievable. It's a perfect storm. Now Johnny, he's been playing music for you know for most of his life, but he's never danced in the in the quote unquote commercial uh, right you know, venues that I have. I don't think he even realizes how unbelievably special it is that we were allowed to do this. But anyhow, yeah, so we did the record. Our volume one came out, I guess it's been like a four or five months now. We have volume two coming out in July, the rest of the sessions. And in any case, we've just been having a great time with it. And at some point, when I go back out on the road again, I'm going to take him with me, and we're going to insert what we do into the middle of my set. That's excellent. And the album's called The River Flows, correct? The River Flows, correct, yeah. And Volume 2 will be The River Flows, Volume 2? That is correct, exactly. It's so perfect. Um, well, that's great. I'm glad you've been able to keep busy and you're still putting out music. You have so much going on, I know. But today we're going to have to kind of stay in the – I could talk to you for hours about stuff, but today we're going to stay with the Grateful Dead thing. Um, well, we we can always talk another time. Let's maybe, do the dead. Let's do the dead thing. Maybe on an airplane on the way back from Jamaica, we can have another conversation. That Who, was knows? Who knows? Who uh, knows? Um, so, like I was telling you earlier, I started doing this with uh, people on Facebook and turned it into kind of an idea where we really dig deep into the influence of the dead on on professional musicians from all genres. And I've talked to people from country and bluegrass and rock and soul and blues all over the place. But I got to say, it's a real honor to have you here. Um, you know, this show's really dissecting and honoring a style of music that you were part of birthing along with the dead. You know, when people think back on that scene, it's, it's the dead in the airplane that first come to mind. So I'm going to ask you the first question I ask all my guests, but I know your answer will be a little different. When did you first come across the dead? When did you first get turned on? Well, I guess I first I first met Jerry in '62 when I moved to California, 
and you know he was he was a, he was always a very inviting kind of guy. So so he made the new guy feel welcome in the scene. It was a very inviting scene back then. I first got turned on to the Dead as the Warlocks. As the Warlocks. Yeah, and so in that era, you, you know, Jerry always did the band thing. I mean, he was he was. He really helped me out a lot to learn how to be a band player because I'd never done it before when I got in the airplane, but he'd done it for years. Anyway, so so all of a sudden, this the, the rock and roll thing is starting to happen. Um, the It's still AM radio, you know, none of that, whatever you want to call it, had started to happen yet. But so all of a sudden, he gets his cast of characters together. We all knew who that cast is, Pig and Bobby and all that kind of stuff. And, and boom, there's the Warlock. So... So I remember I went up someplace, I forget where it was I saw, it might have been Palo Alto or something, and I remember thinking, this really looks like a lot of fun. Now, I never played, I never, I'd owned electric guitars when I was a kid, but I'd never really played electric guitar and any of that kind of stuff, but this looks like a lot of fun. So, so, so they were, you know, for, for our little gaggle of, of, uh, of family and friends, they were the first that made that, they made that leap. So in a lot of ways, you know, they were just absolutely instrumental in, te- in letting guys like me and my pals know we could do this too. When you heard it musically, what was, so when you heard it, I guess you heard Garcia in 62, so he's still playing a lot of acoustic stuff. Sure, um, yeah. And when, he, was playing, he was playing banjo and this and that and the other thing. But he was, you know, in my opinion, he was always a band leader. I mean, in any of the, in any of the groups that he was at, I don't know if the other guys in the band feel this way, but I saw it's his band. He's running the show. Right. So when you hear it as an electric with Bobby and Pig, the Warlocks, let's say, and, and that's so different. It's on the cusp of being different of anything we've ever heard out there. What's your first sure. impression of that? Well, you know, it's really funny because I've been doing it. I've just was working on uh, an interview that this French guy, um, Philip Bois, is writing a story of the history of Hot Tunes. There's a lot of questions about stuff that happened back in the day. And I think that the, the real excitement is possibilities, possibilities. I mean, all I was really interested in up to that point was just doing my thing, which was to play acoustic guitar, to do a little bit of teaching. And had fates been otherwise, I probably would have had a music store in San Jose and, and repaired guitars and done all that kind of stuff that guys that had music stores did back in those days. Right. However, you know, as the rock and roll scene was opening in a very small kind of way. And San Francisco being the odd, you know, sort of like idiosyncratic metaphysical black hole, whatever you want to call it. (laughs) um, There are a lot of different possibilities. And I think I'm sure that nobody architected it in this way. But Jerry and the guys, musically speaking, were in the cusp of that kind of stuff. Sure. They they got, they, I remember they got gigs playing some of those go-go clubs and stuff like that, that, that a lot of the, whatever you want to call them, straight bands played. But it was always different. They brought something different to the table. I think that, I think it would be very difficult to have this discussion without allowing for what psychedelics did to the scene also. Uh, in that era when psychedelics were legal and all that kind of stuff. Right. But that's that's maybe another discussion. But But musically speaking, I mean... Jerry took up so many songs that we were familiar with and presented them with different instruments without losing the character of the songs. But all of a sudden, it was a different story. Now, you could play 
at, at a go-go joint in North Beach or a pizza bar and, or whatever, you know. Right. And you, had, and you had the power, I mean, the physical horsepower to command somebody's attention, whether they wanted to really listen to you or not. I mean, that's one of the things to me, you know, as a guy that played acoustically back then, is when you played, they had to listen. When you plug in, you can talk as, lo- as loud as you want, and I'm just going to turn up. Right. Right. Um, you and Jerry, I mean, you both had this love of blues and country and folk and Americana. Was that your common bond with him? Was that really what brought you two together? Yeah, in a way, I think so. Yes. And, you know, the, like I said, this interview, this thing I'm doing with this guy that's writing this book from France, he's looking for all these deep correlations, you know, in an intellectual sense that... From, that I never would have had back then. I mean, we were those people. It wasn't like, you know, do I need to respect the music by being authentic in this way or whatever? I don't think any of us gave it as another thought. A guy like Jerry that was so educated in the source of the music, you know, there was that purity that came through. He didn't have to sound like something from a Harry Smith collection. Right. He always sounded like Jerry. But the source, I mean, to me, the source was always evident if you knew where to look, you know. So, so for, for guys like the dead, you know, coming up, you know, they started to get gigs. I mean, the other thing was, is like Jerry was a professional musician. They liked getting gigs. And when you've got a band, the guys do like to get paid every now and then, you know, and it's it's an expensive organization. I mean, it's like, you know, if you're playing solo, they, we always used to joke more than three tips, trips to the car. It's not folk music. So... So even in the early days with the dead, it was no longer folk music, you know. Right. But but it was folk music too. And sure. so so I think and I'm not sure that what they did could have happened in the same way in, in any other place in San Francisco, because San Francisco is such a such a confluence of ley lines or whatever. I mean, it's just a bizarre place. Right. Not that bizarre, not that bizarre anymore, but it was back then. And so you- Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. You were living in Santa Clara in that early time. Were you just coming up all the time and going back and forth? Right. Well, in 1965, I moved. I moved to San Francisco. But but before then, well, we joke about this a lot. One of the reasons it was such a big deal when, let's say, somebody came down from Berkeley and played played at the at the Folk Theater or something in San Jose was most of us didn't have cars yet because we just didn't have the money for them. So. So to make for me to make a trip to San, San Francisco, for example, which I did on a number of occasions to play with Janice and stuff like that, required like a half required like a six hour bus trip because the bus stopped like every two miles, you know. So 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 even though like it's it's such a tiny community back then because none of us had the transportation readily available, it was a big deal. Wow. So anyhow, yeah. So so when Jerry and the guys would show up in San Jose. It was a big deal. It was a bunch of guys actually came down from Palo Alto. Yeah, I know it's only like 10 miles, but it was a big deal back then. Right. Right. Um, when you, where should I go? I guess as you're starting to go there and you're, you're starting to turn into the electric and, and, and getting turned on to that and forming with the airplane, are you and Jerry, did you and Jerry, for lack of a better term, study together? Did you guys work things out together? Were you helping each other evolve as guitar players? No, uh, I mean, I, I don't think I really could have helped him much in those days. But I will say that, you know, as soon as the, as soon as the Warlock started, and, and of course, they became the Grateful Dead, the guys were really working. They were doing their thing all the time. 
when I got, I remember when I got into the airplane and I, you know, the guy, I auditioned or whatever you want to call it. And they went, okay, you're in the band. Things were very casual back then. So all of a sudden, so we're playing along. You know, you know, Cantor said, you got to get a Rickenbacker 12 string. I got one, you know, even though it's obviously not my thing. I recognized immediately that I was in, that I was in uh, mysterious waters. And I do remember that I went to talk to Jerry to find out what he thought that I should focus on as now a band player rather than a fingerstyle guitar player. Because one of the things that we used to notice back in the day is two fingerstyle guitar players require thinking. You need to start arranging stuff. Otherwise, there's just too much stuff going on. So that's something that was sort of like weighting down my, my pea-sized musical brain. And so, and, and you know, and people go, well, did Jerry ever give you great advice? I, I said, you know what I remember? He told me, leave, leave holes. You know, don't be playing, because I was a lead guitar player. Don't right. play all the time. You've got somebody else carrying the weight for you. Leave holes, study dynamics. It's, that, know, my, it's that Miles thing. It's that space between the notes, man. Yeah, right. I like that thing, him, him and Coltrane. Coltrane, I, I can't stop playing because take the horn out of your mouth. <laughs> it's really easy. <laughs> we'll say to a keyboard player, I know you know there's 88 keys on there, but you don't have to play them all at once. Yes. You know? <laughs> um, so what would you say? I mean, did you guys realize at that time that you're creating a style of music? Both bands, all the, all the bands in the Bay Area scene at that time. You're creating a style of music that would change the landscape moving forward. Was that were you I, even aware of that? I seriously doubt that any of my guys and gals were aware of the changing of the landscape, but we were aware that we were going somewhere else. I don't think we knew where we were going, but we were going somewhere else. So, you know, Cantor, God bless him, you know, he and Marty had this vision. I had such disdain for pop popular music back in those days. I, mean, I was such an idiot, really, you know, <laughs> because I was I was more authentic, you know. But uh, so my wife was asking me something about some Beatles song, and I went, "I never really listened to the Beatles. It wasn't my thing." Of the Brit guys, I happen to like the Stones better because they were closer to the stuff that I liked. Right. I listened to Rubber Soul, and uh, and of course Sgt. Pepper. So. Uh, just as a quick sidebar, Crosby gave Cantor uh, a reel-to-reel copy of Sgt. Pepper's before it came out. I don't know where he got it. We listened to it. And let me put it this way. Us possessing that, that recording was definitely an enhancement for romantic moments with, with members of the fair sex on the road. That's all I can say. <laughs> thanks, was- Beatles. Thanks, Beatles. And thanks, David. That was so but anyway, to get, put. <laughs> to get to get back to what you were saying, so yeah, so Paul, they, I think he really felt we were going somewhere. I really do. I, I appreciate, you know, as an older guy now, I appreciate what I think his vision was. Um, so, you know, he, he so firmly entrenched in the folk thing, but he recognized immediately that being able that the electric thing was going to be important, you know. And he took me along for the ride, and I appreciate that. But so as we started to get into things, one of the things that I think had a lot to do with the San Francisco headspace as I see it, as I saw it, is we really didn't care what anybody else in the rest of the country thought about us. 
I mean, obviously, it's nice to be respected by fellow musicians, but I think that the San Francisco aggregate vision as a whole by the by the musicians that were pretty good was we're just we're we're going to do something. I don't know what it's going to be. We don't need to sound like Paul Revere and the Raiders. <laughs> I want to back up for a second. And I, I skipped over this, you know, going back from switching from acoustic to electric. You know, when you came out there, you're really more of a the country blues and the folk style. Sure. And and, and now you're getting into the heavier blues and all. Who were some of the influences that led you into the heavier blues and rock styles? So I think that, uh, you know, I, one of the early ones, honestly, was Zolianovsky and the Loving Spoonful. And as a result of that, I got a Standell amp and a, and a, a Gil Thunderbird guitar. Um, and it really funny, I had to talk with John Sebastian about that as a gig. We, just, we hated those amps. We had to play them because... Because we were endorsers, and I'm going. Well, I'm going. Well, strangely enough, that that solid state amp. That's the guitar solo sound on White Rabbit and Somebody to Love. Wow. Who knew? Anyway, but uh, wait, I got sidetracked. Where was I going with this? The the people that influence. Yes, yes, got it. Right. Okay, so so I never, you know, I've loved the blues, you know, most of my life, but. I never had the insights into the Chicago blues that, that some of my contemporaries did for a lot of reasons. And I just got, I just got into that, that, that solo acoustic blues style guitar thing, more, more Piedmont style than, than, uh, than Delta. But in any case, so when I heard the Butterfield blues band, and we saw actually when I saw them live in that album East West, which I think is one of the seminal American albums, I began to immediately realize the possibilities. And Mike Bloomfield, we put him and his wife, my ex-wife and I put him and his wife up for a while when he first came to San Francisco. And he he's he's the guy that first showed me how to sustain notes by turning in. We didn't know any about any of that kind of stuff. I mean, I would have never thought about sustaining a note because because the amplifier was just an amplified guitar. I wasn't actually using it to do the stuff that we all take for granted today. So as that stuff began to evolve, I think one of the I think uh, uh, the Butterfield Blues Band and those guys I think influenced me not specifically in notes and styles, but again in possibilities. Um, and like I loved Buddy Guy. Who can play like Buddy Guy, except Buddy Guy, really? And and back in the 60s, you know, of course, I, I'd seen B.B. King. I got to see T-Bone Walker. So a lot of these guys before the before the, the hippie thing started to happen. That was a different ballgame altogether because those styles required a band. And I was a solo player. So to think about having to get involved in a band with horns and all this, I mean, it just was not in my universe whatsoever. So yes, I'd listened to all the classic Muddy Waters, Wolf, all those chest releases and stuff like that. And when Jack and I were kids, we sort of played that stuff because we played for dances and we need materials, but not really. You right. Know? You know, so so my muse, I think, really later on, like I said, it started, started with Bloomfield. And I think when I heard Cream for the first time, I began to realize the possibilities of being able to adapt some of that material into what I would ultimately do on the electric guitar. In the airplane, on the other hand, you know, the guys and gals, we had all these great writers that wrote very out-of-the-box 
music. And of course, my challenge was not to find a sound. I mean, I didn't, I didn't think about, well, I'm going to create something nobody's ever done. I just wanted to create anything that would fit with these weird songs that the people in the airplane wrote. So, so I was kind of forced into learning how to do that kind of stuff, which sort of became more adaptive in my style as I became a, a more competent guitar player in, in other realms. Gotcha. P- uh, Pigpen is so big in the blues. I mean, that's oh, where he gosh. came from. Any, do you guys talk about that? Where you guys have any bond because of that blues? Any influence on each other? I remember uh, I met Pig, I guess, when I first came out there in 62, and he had to be a young teenager then. You know, Pig was such an interesting character. I mean, first of all, back then he was just Blue Blue Ron. He wasn't, he wasn't Pigpen yet. Blue Ron. Blue Ron, yeah. And I remember hearing him play the guitar and just being knocked out because most of the guitar players that I knew coming from the East Coast tended to be more Piedmont style players and 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 uh, Ron, and Pig was such a primitive. It's the you know I mean in a way he was even more primitive than John Hammond. You know, he was so primal on 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 that level. You know, and he just loved the music so much and uh you know, it, I I guess I mean, you know, we're not gonna rewrite history but but I, I love that era of the dead when he was an integral part of their sound. You know, that little Farfisa organ and all that kind of stuff, you know. Of course, as we know, the dead explored cosmic vistas later on. But back in those days, they were a very eccentric, blues-esque band. Yeah. You you guys are coming up together with all the other bands in the 60s there. You're making your names for yourselves. And, and again, I'm going to say it. You're basically inventing a whole new genre as you come up. There's no rules. Everything is so new. You have no you have no rules at all. This is what we're doing. Are are your two bands rubbing off on each other? I mean, they're very different musical styles in a way, but are you guys influencing each other in any way? That that's a good question. I'm really not sure that I can answer that. I I wish Canada were still alive because he'd weigh in on this like crazy. But uh I guess perhaps in an unconscious way. And I and by that I think that, you know, for, for me, and I go speak about myself, when I, you know, when I started to adapt what I had learned how to do as a as electric guitar player in the airplane, everything that I do back in those days, and to some extent today too, was based on chord positions because I was always looking for things so I could do something with my thumb and this and that and the other thing. Jerry could finger pick too. However, I remember him studying all those Mel Bay ex- scale exercises and stuff like that. I learned a couple of them too, and I could never, ever figure out what to do with it. He obviously did. So so I think that one of the things that I think that, that intrigued me listening as a guitar player, listening to his playing, was his ability to use scales, his knowledge of scales without playing scales in an artful way with the band. It was so different from what, what we did with the airplane, you know, and, and it it was, you know, and and again, the airplane didn't really lend itself to that kind of thing because just because it wasn't that kind of an animal. But I think that there's just constantly stuff that we're listening to our buddies. Yeah, that's pretty cool. What about that? Or guitar sounds, you know, 
You know, like like there's some there's some of Jerry's guitar sounds that I as a player like better than others. Like he could have cared less, I'm sure. You know, but <laughs> but, but but you know you know when Owsley did that thing when he had them all when they had the guys all playing through hi fi and he was trying to create this sort of integrated system. I personally was never fond of that sound because even though I didn't know what I was listening to, I liked the individual sound that the guitar players all I got using whatever gear they had, you know, overdriving amplifiers or whatever, you know. Um, that being said, as I, like I said, I'm sure the Jerry and E guys could have cared less what Yorma thought about that kind of stuff. But, <laughs> but the, of course, the outgrowth of all that stuff is the modern PAs that we take for granted today. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was. I would. In my last uh, episode, I talked about that. That whole wall of sound was the precursor to the line array. You know, it was, absolutely unbelievable stuff. So just, I mean, so far ahead of its time. It sounds stupid to say that. Yeah, as so many of the things they did. It's it's interesting you brought it up because in my last episode, I did a whole segment on that, talking with uh, my friend Brad Sarno, who you may or may not know, makes uh, makes effect pedals, Sarno Music Solutions. But um, all about how that was just groundbreaking, you know, and that's Owsley and Healy and the guys from Alembic. Yeah. And Rick Turner putting this thing together and not, again, cutting edge way ahead of its time. Totally. And, and you know, and, and, and it's not the kind of thing I think could, that could have ever happened in a band context out of San Francisco because it just costs too much money. I was going to say it almost and, broke them. Yeah. Yeah. But most bands wouldn't would, would never thought about something like that but in san francisco thanks to the more communal thought processes they did it was just there was so so much it was a visionary environment really um getting back to that word do you feel like was there any sense of i mean you talked a little bit about the influence even if it's mental on each other was there any sense of like a a healthy competition between not not between you and jerry per se but between the bands did you push I, each I mean, other did you how did that work yeah, I mean, look, I think that, you know, you know, both us and the dead, I think we, I think we took our art very seriously. You know, we, we didn't fool around. We, you know, we rehearsed, um, and we wanted things always to be um, as good as they could possibly be. But, and of course, of course, we're artists, so of course there's that kind of competition. I don't think you can get away from it. But I think that it was, I think that it was more than benign and very healthy. I mean, for example... I remember when we played the West Palm Beach Pop Festival, but we opened for the Rolling Stones. And in my humble opinion, on that day, we blew them off the stage. I would have never said something like that about the, about my buddies from the dead. It would I would it would never have occurred to me to thought to think like that. What separated you? You you and the dead. I mean, there's so many great bands that came out of there. There was so much amazing music being made, stuff we've never heard before could possibly never hear again but what separated the airplane and the dead from the other bands in that scene i think that we yeah, it's kind of funny to think about some of the wacky my wacky friends that i grew up with in the airplane we wanted to get into the music business and we wanted to be successful i never had this conversation with jerry so i uh, so i can't speak for him but even though we didn't play well with others in the commercial world, we did play with them. And as a result of that, 
you know, of course we got lucky. We got lucky with Pillow. That was a big hit for us. You know, I mean, you can't script that kind of stuff. Right. But once, but once we got into the into the machine of of the commercial music of that time, we did all the stuff. You know, we did the publicist, the this and the that. I don't know whether Jerry and the guys did that or not. If they had the opportunity, if it was offered, if they decided not to, but we, I think we played better with the with the more mainstream commercial guys. Even though I know we gave them grief at every possible <laughs> moment. You know, I, I know that they went that route to an extent, and they gave them enough grief that they wanted to push away. You know, the record albums just didn't want to deal with it as much. Well, one thing that happened with the airplane also is is that we had, you know, Marty had been in the music in the commercial music business before us, and I remember he he had a regional hit with something I forget what it was or what, but in any case, you know, Paul and the guys they really wanted to have hits. I'm not sure that was an issue. I never discussed this with them, but I never. I'm not sure that was an issue with Jerry and the guys. And you know, if you look at, I, I guess the only really pop rock success that the airplane had, you know, in, in that realm, was Surrealistic Pillow, because it had a bunch of those kind of songs on it. Now Jerry knew a lot about that stuff because he was int- he was uh, an integral part of arranging and helping us record that album. He was a big part of that album. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of his taste and his artistic decisions in the way those things came together. So there's no question that he knew the deal. Now, whether that was an, important to what they did with the dead, or maybe they just didn't have the right kind of material to do that with, I don't know. As as, as things as time went on with them, like we were talking about, they started, you know, firmly rooted as a, a hard rock and blues band. Um, but they were such a chameleon. There's country, there's blues, there's jazz, there's rock, there's psychedelia. Later on, there's a lot of cover to- songs that are more from the pop realm. Were you a fan of where they, of how their music evolved? Did it still connect with you and resonate with you over the years? Yeah, I think it did. Uh, I think that, you know, we, we sort of take this for granted today, but the, the Grateful Dead, in my opinion, is a singular animal. I can't think of any other musical entity that you can really mention in the same sentence. I, I can't. You know, the the, the, the chemistry of the guys uh, and gals in the band and what they brought to the table and how it came out. I mean, there's, there's college courses in that stuff today. You know, I mean, there really is. But but for the guys, I mean, that's just how it was. You know, there was nothing that was too, you know, I'm an outsider, you know, so I wasn't part of these decisions, but it seemed like there was nothing that couldn't be brought to the table and digested in some way. And if you look at the artists in the band, I mean, take a guitar player like Bob Weir. I know that over the year, you know, people have like criticized Bobby. He's not like Jerry, blah, blah, blah. In the same way that people have criticized Paul Cantor. Cantor was a brilliant guitar player. He wasn't a good, he didn't play like me. Thank goodness. They already right. had one. Me, they did another right. one. The sound of the airplane, in my opinion, is predicated on the rhythm section, Paul, Jack, and Spencer. And this, the sound of the dead in many respects is predicated on their rhythm section also. And Bobby Weir is a huge part of that, you know? So, so his musical vision, and he has a really interesting vision. I mean, he, you know, Bob went to New York and took a lesson from Mary gave, Reverend Davis. Bob doesn't, he's not a fingerstyle guitar player like I am, but what he extracted from that is the chords of Samson and Delilah 
Right. When he plays those chords of the dead, those are the reverence chords. I can't play that song. <laughs> I just heard something on the internet. Actually, yesterday there's some isolated tracks where it's it's live concert footage, but it's just the isolated track of right. Bobby's rhythm guitar. It's brilliant. It's different. It is brilliant. Ab- totally. Absolutely. Uh, one of them I was listening to last night. It, it's brilliant, but the thing that really stood out to me was when you isolate it, you can hear nothing else but that guitar. How much something we touched on before? How much he didn't play? How much space there is right. in places that, for a normal rhythm guitarist, you would expect it to be there, right? On a downbeat or on the first two beats of that measure, but it doesn't come in until the eighth note of the three on the end of three. Here he comes. Now I'm back. Just so unique. Yeah, it is unique, but the groove is always there. Yeah, man, always. And some of it would be single note stuff, and some of it is the chord. It's just it's, brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. All within the same measure. Yeah. You know, just su- such cool stuff. Um, I want to talk about songwriting for a minute, if sure. you don't mind. Uh, and and the interpretation, because we touched on this about how Jerry could take a traditional song and, and do his thing to it. How did you view their catalog as, as songwriters and as interpreters? And did that influence your own writing or your own interpreting of music? I, you know... When I li- you know, it's really funny when you when I listen to Grateful Dead, I mean Grateful Dead material. There's some of that stuff that you listen to, that sounds to me, that sounds like a traditional American folk song. Yeah, I should be able to pick up my guitar and play that song, until you pick up your guitar and try to play that song. Right. I mean, you know, uh, I I early on gained an immense amount of respect for the adaptive creativity that the guys did with their material. I don't know who the driving force was this. I presume Jerry had a huge part of it, but but where they where they could somehow put an interesting spin on anything they did, you know. Without 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 I mean at the same time it it just sounded like it ought to be simple, but it never was, you know. I don't have the ad. I'm not using. I'm not using very lucid words to describe no, it's, it. No, it's all good. Um, I think part. You know, taking a song that wasn't theirs necessarily and doing yeah. that, the essence of the song never went away. You know, where that song came from always still existed inside there. I think that's something that was really. Yeah, cool. I mean, I mean, take a song like "Morning Dew," for example. You know, I mean, here's a who wrote this song, Bonnie. Uh, Bonnie Dobson. Bonnie Dobson. Yeah. So, so here's a song. It's really funny because that song is such a part of the American songbook that I forgot that Bonnie Dobson wrote that song. <laughs> it, it just came up recently with me and John. Johnny and I did it for one of our shows. We went, Bonnie Dobson, man, I forgot about that completely. But anyhow, take a song like that. I mean, what they did to the song, it's, it could have existed for 100 years. Yeah. And... Uh, and when you think about it, so many people don't really even know what the subject matter is in that song. Isn't that something? Yeah, I mean, it's this beautiful, beautiful song, and it can mean so much, and it's really about a nuclear holocaust, you know? That's exactly, exactly. It's, it's, yeah, that's, it's, it's, yeah it's that was the other thing, too. I'd completely forgotten about that, because you don't yeah. think about it when you hear the song, but boom, there it is. That was the song for me that I, as I learned about The Grateful Dead, became one of my all, the fa- my favorites, both for playing wise and the music of it and the power sure. and, and the way it builds and the emotion it can get and also the lyrics. And that was the one when I was going to shows, I was chasing. It took me forever to hear it, not knowing that I actually heard it at my first show, but it didn't know it yet. 
as right. I'm learning about the dad. I never knew that song, and I get I hear him warning, "This is the greatest. I got to hear it." And then I go back and look at the set lists. I wonder what I heard at my first show, and sure as shit, there it was, and I had no there idea. There it was, and it took yeah, me then, seven more so, years to hear it. So those, so the adaptive possibilities. I mean, the way they, the way they made, the way they own songs are really creative. And then you get into the writing. Now, you know the the collaboration. I mean, there's just so much great writing with these guys. Also, I mean, you, you think about the the possible chemistry of the various people in the band. I mean, a lot of these things would have never happened if it weren't those people at that time. You know, I mean, if you think about the Jefferson Airplane, for me, the most creative period is before Spencer left the band. Joey Covington was a great drummer, but for me, the magic was starting to, to dissipate a little bit because things were changing. I mean, it's not a criticism of Joey or anything else. Things were just changing. But at any given moment, the chemistry, what happened with the dead and the writing was, is incredible. And the long-term partnership of him, him and Robert Hunter is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it's so powerful and, and obviously so important to everybody, even now, all these younger generations that come out and see us and go and see Dead and Company and go and see Joe Russo that never would have even come close. You know, they, were, they weren't even born before the dead sure. was gone, but they got yeah. cool parents that turn them on to this music right, that right. is is never going to go away. That's, you know, become part of the great American songbook, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Um, well, I want to thank you so much, but before I let you go, if you don't mind, I do this with all my guests. Uh, it's usually the world's slowest lightning round. Um, but hopefully okay. we can just do it. I'm going to ask you some, just come, what comes up. Your favorite album okay. of all time, any genre. What's, the, what's the, your go-to album? Wow, that's, that's a tough question. So Everybody just, hates it. No, well, no, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a tough one. Uh, that's a good question. You know something? Uh, I, if I have to pick one, uh, I would pick a Reverend Davis's Harlem Street Singer. Awesome. I got to go uh, a little. That, yeah. yeah, right. That I, Prestige Bluesville recording, yeah. I did a nice segment on Reverend Gary Davis a while back and then had a great talk with Larry Campbell about him on a, on a previous episode. Let's go easy now. What's your favorite color? Oh, black. First job. My first job. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> my first job was, was my dog washing business. <laughs> right. When you're a little guy, when you're a kid. Right. They were a dog washing business. <laughs> I think my favorite job before, before I, you know, Got your real job. Yeah, before I got my real job, was as a as a swing shift night manager at the Sunoco station on uh, Connecticut Avenue in D.C. I loved that job. I'd sit around, nothing was happening, pump a little gas, play some guitar. Right on. Uh, favorite venue to play? Ooh, that's a good question. Favorite venue? Well, I'm going to say right now, because all I've been playing is, is my own little theater at the Fur Peace Station. However... Having said having said that, just because I've been doing that for the last year, um, but God, there's so many good venues out there. But I will say, almost any venue in New York City, there's something magical about that energy. You know, I, I, I'd like I'll say the Beacon because that's probably the most recent right. of the big venues that we've done. Um, but but any any venue in in, Man, in the Manhattan in, in the New York area, best city for a day off. Best city for a day off? I would probably say, I'd probably say New York. I'd probably say New York. 
First car. Oh, 1950 Studebaker Starlight Coupe. Color. It was it was sort of like real dark monkey puke green. <laughs> but before I took all before I before I took all the chrome off and 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 leaded and primered all the spots but never painted it again. <laughs> all right, and for these last ones I want I want to go back to those days in in, in San Francisco coming up and, and when all everything we've been talking about. One word that thinking back to those days, if you don't mind. One word, Jerry. Brilliant, Bob. Mm. Eccentrically brilliant, <laughs> Phil. Diligent, Billy. Solid. Mickey. Extraterrestrial. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, pig pen. Basic. And Hunter. Wow. Soulful. I love it, man. Thank Insi- you. And soulful. Insightful. Got, got to get that in there, too. Yeah, for sure, man. Well, again, Yorma, it, it has been such an honor to have you on here. And I look forward to getting to see you again, getting to play together again. Yeah. Maybe we'll that get would to- be swell. Where, where are you, Bob, physically? I'm in St. Louis, Missouri. I live in St. Louis. Okay. And, uh, you know, we'll be getting back out on the road like you guys very soon. And Well, we all look forward to that. And, and Hope, uh, Hopefully we'll know, get to the Jubilee again soon. Oh, man, I'm so, yeah. That's a good one for you. You can come and play, and then you can drive home. It is. You know, it also, I, I bought an RV last year, so I'm going to be touring in my RV. It's it, You know, as you know, RVs are three-season vehicles. You can't use them in the winter. Right. But, uh I'll be I'll be taking mine on the road next month. Perfect place. You got a you got a spot in there to store the drones. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I thought. And um, then, you know, you know, I'm the ultimate house guest. I'll just park in front of your house and use your shower. People love that. You could do it here anytime when you're passing through St. Louis. So the new album that came out is The River Flows Volume One. Volume Two will be out later this summer, I believe you said. Yeah, July, I think. And it's all on Culture Factory Records, and you can look it up through Yorma's website. I'm sure. Um, stay safe, my friend. Again, thank you so much for your time. I, I, yeah. I appreciate this. Yeah, back at you. It's, it's you know, I love these Zoom things. It, you know, there's just the two of us. When I, when, when I do the teaching, it looks like the Hollywood Squares. But uh, but it's great seeing you. I hope to see you in person sometime. Stay well. Best of the family. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. That's Yorma Kalkin. And take care, my friend. Yeah, man. Oh, man, that was so cool. Uh, Such a genuine guy, so much fun to talk to him. And you can check out the video version of this on my Patreon site. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode, and I'd like to thank Yorma for being so generous with his time. It It was really special for me to get him on here. I'd also like to thank Jeff Malinowski of The Stolen Faces for spending some time with me and my sponsors. Sarno Music Solutions and Blue Jade Audio, The Clean Store, The Authenticity Academy, and Grateful Sweats. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support the cause, please consider a subscription at patreon.com forward slash the music plays that offers weekly bonus content, or make a one-time contribution at paypal.me forward slash the music plays. Any love is much appreciated as we try and keep the show rolling along. The Music Plays the Band is produced by myself and the production and songwriting team Brothers Lazaroff here in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find out more about them at www.brotherslazaroff.com. The opening and segue music you are hearing are remixes of portions of DSO drum segments that are produced by my drumming partner Dino English. 
I'll be home from the road and back again in two weeks on May 6th with episode 12 featuring Anders Beck from Green Sky Bluegrass. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and please stay vigilant. We're playing these outdoor shows now, but we need to keep things heading in the right direction, and it's going to take everyone's efforts to make that happen. Thanks for being here. People join in heaven, heaven, while the music fades away. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.